Hey everybody, welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There is a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, thanks for returning to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call. I may not be able to help you personally, but I can surely direct you to the right agency or person. So I just wanted to get to some housekeeping stuff. Like I said, this is the fourth installment of our case on the Boston bombing Boston Marathon bombings of 2013, and I wanted to let you know that the vast majority of my research material comes from Michelle McPhee's book, Mayhem, Unanswered Questions about the Zanayev Brothers, the FBI, and the Boston bombings. Please, if you liked any of these four podcasts that I've produced, read her book. She lays it out in a a much better fashion. Also, I think I said in the last uh, episode, look at the pictures. I've downloaded Michelle's book on my iPad, and typically I forget to look at the pictures uh, as they're kind of hidden on the iPad. It's kind of strange, you know, from Amazon. But there are some startling pictures on there, and some of them are originals, and some of these pictures in Michelle's book, Mayhem, have become iconic. Some you've seen before and some you haven't. So check those out. I just want to give you a heads up on that. The book's phenomenal. And to be quite frank, I don't know where is 60 minutes with this case? Where is, is there even 2020? I, I guess Dateline's still around. But this case, I don't know if it's corruption, but it's definitely malfeasance. If you want to reach out to me on this case or any other, Please feel free. I enjoy interacting with you guys, and I've had some interaction since our email became active. My email for the podcast is barry at bostonconfidential.net, and you can also check out our website, and you can contact me through that as well, and that web address is bostonconfidential.net. So I'd love to hear from you guys. All right, so let's get to it. The individual we're going to discuss today, I believe, is the lesser known person involved in this case. And he may very likely have constructed the bombs utilized at the marathon bombings and the shootout afterwards. So he's an important cog in this wheel. His name is Daniel Morley and he was in his mid twenties around Tamalin's age. And he lived in Topsfield, Massachusetts. And Even within this section of the case, there's a lot of moving parts. I'm going to start with an incident that originally brought Daniel Morley to police attention and I believe the FBI's attention. I can't be sure what the FBI knew at that time because they've been so evasive in this case. One of the problems with the FBI is a lot of times they operate at the intersection of intelligence gathering and protection in law enforcement. So those two sometimes collide. They can't release certain information and other times they're looking to cover their ass. A lot of that happened in this case. Both things happened. They can't release some of the information 
because there's intelligence agents behind it, but also the FBI really dropped the ball on this case from the Boston bombings to the Waltham triple homicide. And now to this guy, the suspected bomb maker, Daniel Morley. So here we are. Daniel Morley, 20 something, lived in Topsfield, Massachusetts. He was a big kid, 6'2", 240 pounds. And people say, and I think this was his mother's quote, that he had a genius level IQ, but he had some ongoing mental illness. Now, Daniel was on various medications, I believe, to help him with his mental illness. And when he was taking them, he was functional and he was employed and he seemed to be a decent member of the family. At one point, he was involved in a biking accident, and he ended up moving back home to Topsfield. And during 2013, that's where life had found Mr. Morley living in Topsfield, which is a beautiful community. You know, it used to be described as rural. I don't know if it is anymore. It's the home of the Topsfield Fair. That's their claim to fame. It's a giant carnival, beautiful town kind of upscale on Boston's North Shore. So um, very bucolic, nice town. So Mr. Morley worked on and off from about 2005 to 2012 in various positions at MIT. Daniel Morley's father was a scientist at MIT and worked at one of the, I don't know if it's a military laboratory but it's quasi-privately funded, housed at MIT, kind of secret squirrel type stuff going on there. So it would appear that the father got Daniel some types of jobs within MIT and in the science section. I believe at one time he was in the veterinarian science section. And at one point he became despondent because of the experiments going on with animals. But when he was on his medication, Daniel was able to function pretty well, and he held those jobs in various capacities up until the time he completely lost it. All right, so the Boston Marathon bombing happened on April 15th, 2013. About eight weeks later, on January 9th, 2013, the Topsfield Police Department get a call from Daniel Morley's mother, and her name is Glenda Duckworth. And she had a long-term boyfriend named David Bloss, B-L-O-S-S. At about 2.40 a.m., Sergeant Detective Gary Haywood of the Topsfield Police was dispatched to an address near the center of town in Topsfield, Massachusetts. When he arrived, he observed an elderly woman in a bathrobe and a man sitting on a park bench in proximity to the library, which was across the street from the Morley Duckworth home. So during Haywood's initial interview with Glenda Duckworth, it was relayed to him that their son was having a mental episode, a mental health episode, and she relayed a harrowing story where he lost his mind, basically. He had stolen her glasses off of her face, called her a witch, placed her glasses on the stovetop and turned it on. At that point, he started to draw whiskers, yes, whiskers like a cat, onto his mother. At a certain point, the boyfriend intervenes and they tussle. 
the mother and the boyfriend ended up having to flee the house out of a window. And they went across the street and called the police, and that's where they were now. And Mrs. Duckworth said her son, Daniel Morley, had become despondent in the last eight weeks or so. Keep in mind, it had been about eight weeks since the Boston bombing. So this all goes as planned. The detective thought this was just another domestic with some person who had mental illness. So they get to talking and he finds out that Daniel Morley has all types of weapons in this house. And this goes on and on. It gets to be a pretty big police presence in Topsfield. Believe me, there's nothing larger going on in Topsfield than this case during the early morning hours. And at a certain point, Morley holds up in the house briefly, but ends up surrendering. And he's taken by ambulance to the hospital, and he's followed there by a police cruiser. During this time frame, the police do a search, a cursory search of the house, which is pretty typical when there's a mental health issue. They don't want people to be dismissed from the hospital, returning to an environment that has all kinds of weapons and, you know, maybe pills, whatever, whatever dangerous items. So the police do go in and do a cursory search, and what they find is startling. There's what appears to be a pressure cooker bomb in Daniel Morley's closet. And that fact is radioed to a patrolman who was assigned to follow the ambulance to the hospital. And at that point, the patrolman gets out as they arrive at the hospital and asks Daniel Morley straight out, is that a live bomb in your closet, Daniel? And Daniel says, yes, yes, that is in fact a live bomb. So naturally, the police evacuate the home once they get Morley out and the rest of the neighborhood. They didn't know exactly what they were dealing with. At a certain point after the bomb is cleared and the bomb ends up not being a live bomb and nobody really knows why Morley lied about it, but he was definitely going through a crisis at this point. So now they need to search the house. They didn't need to wait for a warrant because one of the other occupants of the home, I believe it was the boyfriend, David Bloss, gave permission to search the house. He actually owned the house along with Glenda Duckworth. So they were able to get permission to search the entire house, and the police did. And they were astounded at what they found. I'm going to read to you right now some of the things that they found within the house. First, they found the pressure cooker bomb, what they thought was a live bomb. It ended up being empty, but there was a pressure cooker. There was a bag that exactly fit the pressure cooker also in the closet. There was a box top. It was the same brand used in the Boston Marathon bombings. It's called a Fager, F-A-G-O-R, pressure cooker. And that's identical to the one that was used in the marathon bombing. And on the flip side of this box top, there was a recipe for thermite, which makes bombs explode more aggressively. So the cops don't know what's going on here, but they know they have a hell of a problem on their hands. Some of the other things that they found in there was fertilizer. There was an M44 rifle that was used by the Russians in World War II. It was fully loaded. There were dozens of flex cuffs. There were knives, swords, and a machete. 
Don't forget, a machete was used in the Waltham murders, the triple murders in Waltham. There was a T-shirt, a Mass State Police T-shirt in his room as well. There was a starter log. It was called Ignite O Fire starter log. There was calcium in metal shavings in a coffee grinder. And the calcium is believed to make the items within the bomb burn. So when the contents of the bomb hit the victims, it sticks to them and burns them. That's what the calcium and thermite were for. So they also had within the house, they found within the house, aluminum grade steel wool, hides, uh, typically you'd see them in drug cases where it's actually a whipped cream canister, but there's a false bottom. They were empty, but there were several of those around. Mr. Morley had a 22 caliber pistol and two clips laying right next to the gun. None of these guns were secured as required by Massachusetts law. There were also ball bearings, numerous dismantled cell phones. And strangely, guys, there's a decapitated bird in a shoebox. So the police must have been losing their shit at this search. So as the Topsfield police, and I believe there was a contingent of Mass State police there as well, they're conducting this search, pulling their hair out, wondering what the hell's going on with this guy. And all of a sudden, the FBI shows up. Nobody had called the FBI. What happened there? Nobody knows and nobody will tell. Was the FBI monitoring police radio contact between, say, the Topsfield Police Department and the Mass State Police? And they hear that the bomb squad gets called out and they find an address in Topsfield? Does that indicate that the FBI already knew about Mr. Morley? I don't know. Another question mark in this case. Jot that down, but we're going to move on. Also in the house, something that alarmed the police was like a shrine. It appeared to be the Boston skyline with somebody with a heart in its hands. It kind of had some jihadi feel to it, according to those who were present. And it was just madness with this guy's room. So everybody was super concerned. But as the FBI came in, they took control of the scene. They end up taking all of the evidence. But a piece of evidence that really stood out was this green cord. You find out later that this green cord was used to go around some of the ball bearings placed into the bomb. And again, these were used as an adhesive to make the ball bearings stick to human skin upon the explosion. And this was identified in a affidavit from the FBI, which would come out later. But these green ties, these adhesives were found within Morley's home. So he is tied to this bombing. And I don't care what anybody says. He is tied just from that search alone. So everybody in the Topsfield police is kind of scratching their heads over this. How did this happen in Topsfield? It soon came about that with the FBI involvement, the local police kind of tied it quickly to the Boston bombings. The secrecy around it, the secrecy required from the FBI on this case, concerned the local police. It was a guy who had assaulted his mother, likely had assaulted the boyfriend, 
and had a bomb factory in their town. And these local cops were told there was little they could do about it. So Morley's now at the hospital and he's under arrest, at least for the domestic violence. I believe later he'd be charged with some of the other items. But believe me, he was never convicted of anything. So as the investigation continues, it became apparent that Mr. Morley did have a connection to Tamlin Zanayev. And it was through a friend called Mark Pascuto. It's P-A-S-C-U-I-T-O. I don't know if I'm butchering that name. But Morley also took a class with Tamlin Zanayev at a local community college. And he had later bragged that he knew him and his friend Mark had boxed with Tamlin. So the Topsfield police continue their investigation and they continue talking with Mrs. Duckworth and Mr. Bloss. Mr. Bloss is the boyfriend of Morley's mother. And Mr. Bloss had a strange account. He had said that for about eight weeks that Daniel Morley had become increasingly paranoid and agitated. They say Daniel Morley was always a little bit off, but during these several weeks since the bombing, the Boston Marathon bombing, he had been even more strange. And Mr. Bloss relayed a story to the detective on the morning of the bombing. Morley was helping Bloss around the yard and they were doing yard work and everything was going well until Morley's phone rang. And at that point, he just left without comment got into his vehicle and drove away. And later in the afternoon, the explosions happened at the Boston Marathon and Bloss immediately put it on Daniel Morley's mother and asked, where is your son? Or where was your son? And I guess she tried to cover for him saying he was home sleeping or something like that, but he wasn't. He was in the wind and he'd remained gone for several days. And when he'd returned, he said he had been fishing in Maine with a friend. I don't know if that was this Mark Pescudo or whomever, but he said he had been fishing. And when he returned, he was kind of callous about the bombings. The whole city was up in arms and in tears over this. And he said words to the effect that, yeah, people die every day and that the kids that were injured were just collateral damage. Both Morley's mother and Bloss at this point started getting concerned maybe that Dan Morley was involved in this case. Okay, guys, so I want to bring your attention to three days after the bombing. It was Thursday, April 18th, 2013. The Cambridge police were responding to a robbery at a 7-Eleven in Cambridge in proximity to the MIT campus. A man enters the store, the 7-Eleven, and is speaking on a cell phone. And he pulls out a weapon and robs the clerk of $29. Simultaneously, MIT police officer Sean Collier is being assassinated. So the Cambridge police immediately say the bombers have used somebody to rob this 7-Eleven as a diversion for the killing of Sean Collier. Keep in mind that April 18th was within that time frame that Dan Morley was absent without real explanation from his house in Topsfield. 
The next day, the police, the Mass State Police and several other law enforcement agencies walked back the statement that this was a diversion for the assassination of Sean Collier. But several people had taken screenshots of the ID. This person who did the robbery made no attempt to disguise themselves. So there were screenshots on cell phones going being passed around. And at a certain point after this case was over, Michelle McPhee actually showed this picture to David Bloss, who was effectively the stepdad of Dan Morley. And at this point, David Bloss almost loses it and says, oh my God, that's Dan. So David Bloss positively identifies him. Several police officers identify him. And other friends of Dan Morley say, yes, that's Dan. So it is the assumption that the FBI pressured the state and local police to walk back the assertion that this was a diversion in the killing of Sean Collier, which is so perplexing to me. And I'm going to tell you exactly why it's perplexing to me after the break. And after the break, we'll get right back to it. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. All right, guys, we're back. So I wanted to tell you why this is so perplexing to me. This guy does a diversionary robbery. The diversion was to divert the attention from the MIT campus where these two were going to shoot Officer Collier. And it seems like the FBI had no interest in solving this portion of the case. Here is a third bomber, essentially. And the Watertown shootout hadn't happened yet, but this police officer was just assassinated. I can't believe that. A fellow law enforcement officer, I think they should have thrown all this bullshit to the wind and put those two in the ground and arrested Morley and have Morley flip and tell the story. But they were afraid Tamalin Zanayev, that story, they were afraid of Tamalin and his story that he was an informant used by the Boston FBI. And don't forget, this was on the heels of Tamalin going to Russia while he was on two no-fly lists. He goes to the caucuses while he's on these no-fly lists, tape records local Islamist fundamentalists, and some of those he's talked to are killed by Russian special forces. Either Tamlin was working directly with the FSB or through the FBI. There was a pitched battle, and Tamlin Zanayev zeroed the FSB in on these militants. And after that happened, he returns to Boston and a few weeks later is called down to the office in downtown Boston for his immigration hearing. He was about to become a citizen for what he had done in Russia. Okay? And the FBI, in my humble estimation, just didn't want that out there. But I cannot believe that after the direct assassination of Collier, that they didn't call all that bullshit off and go find these goddamn guys. I can't believe it. So the 7-Eleven robbery 
is still supposedly an open and active case in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but they now direct all comments and questions to the Boston FBI field office because nobody can say why this happened. It's just perplexing. And they basically tell you to go F yourself. We're just not answering it. And they invoke national security over it. I'm trying to figure out how many people Tamlin Zanayev is involved in killing. And the way I figure it, I think I come to the number 12. And I'm going to tell you how I got there. He was responsible, directly responsible, for the bombing victims, Martin Richard, Lindsay Liu, Christy Campbell, Sean Collier, and Boston police officer Dennis Simmons. And then he was responsible for the three people he brutally murdered in Waltham and at least four people that he fingered to be killed in a military action in Russia. That's 12 people, right? So the last one, as we have it here, some of the others haven't occurred yet. Dennis Simmons was still alive. But there's serial killers out there who haven't killed 12 people. And this guy, Morley, was a piece of this puzzle. Why aren't we hunting him down? I can understand Tamlin Zanayev was your informant. I get it. What was Morley? Morley deserves to be in prison. He's a lunatic, right? What happens if he goes off his medications again? He no longer lives with his mother. I believe he still lives on the North Shore. But my God, this guy is out free. He ended up doing two years, right? He ended up doing two years in a psychiatric institution, right? And I couldn't tell you, that's the longest stay I've ever heard of in a psychiatric care facility in Massachusetts. Who paid that bill? And conveniently, just after Zokar Zanayev's trial, he's released. No charges, no probation, no parole, nothing. Just a free man. What the hell did Morley have on these people? Why did they want him free so badly? To this day, he still won't comment on what he did. Michelle McPhee went to him, staked him out, and asked him, what did you have to do with these bombings? And he smiles like he grins about this. I can't believe that some local district attorney hasn't said F you to the FBI and go make this arrest. But again, the FBI is a powerful force, and when they invoke national security, there's very little questions asked. One of the other questions I have, and I posed this to Michelle McPhee recently, what was the upside here for the FBI? They fucked up their relationship with Tamlin Zanayev and tried to hide it on everybody, and they looked horrible doing it. But they could have redeemed themselves in this Morley case. Imagine the great publicity the FBI would have received if they made Dan Morley do the perp walk into the federal courthouse in the seaport, right? They would look like the best detective agency in the world. And believe me, that's how they portray themselves. Why didn't the FBI want to solve this case? Why isn't everybody in prison, right? Zokar just got a second shot at life. He had received the death penalty in this case and was in a supermax prison in Colorado. And now the families have to go through all this horseshit again. So will they subpoena Morley on this? I don't think so because... The only finding that's under appeal is the sentence, the death sentence. So it's likely they wouldn't need much new evidence to do that. So I do believe that 
Tamlin's brother, Zoker, will get the death penalty again. And believe me, he deserves it. He deserves it 10 times over. Zokar is the one who placed the bomb directly under Martin Richard and on purpose. So he is right where he belongs. Just a quick recap. Dan Morley's house is a bomb factory. The bomb factory had all the ingredients to make these bombs, recipes. There was material attached to ball bearings, attached by Dan Morley. This green fiber that was found at his house was also found within the victims of the Boston Marathon. And this guy gets a skate. He gets no jail time. I cannot believe this. It's a travesty of justice. It's horrible. And just one other thing. I'm sorry, this has gone on longer than I thought it would, but I just get fired up over it. But I want to draw your attention to my original interview with Michelle McPhee and directly to Michelle McPhee's book, Mayhem. There was likely a third shooter at the Watertown shootout, right? One of the cops actually engaged this guy and he took off running. The cop provided a pretty good description, but when this guy ran off, the policeman had to go back to fighting. He had to go back to this firefight that was going on with the Zanayevs. And the FBI has never adequately identified this potential third shooter. Could that have been Morley? Todeshev was in Florida by then, if you remember. There are some other characters involved in this case, and it could have been any one of them, but Morley was violent, and he seemed to like violence and likely supplied these bombs. So would he shy away from a shootout with the police? Unlikely. So next to the Zanayas themselves, I believe that Daniel Morley is the most intriguing character in this case, and he deserves another look, but guess what? This happened in 2013, so we're coming up on the statute of limitations in this case. And the feds are just going to let it run. I can't believe it. It's sickening. I don't know how these guys go to sleep at night. Okay, guys, so just in closing, in terms of the search at the Topsfield house, all charges were ultimately dropped after Morley got out of the uh, psychiatric unit after a two-year stay. Conveniently, he wasn't available to testify against Zokar Zanayev and the domestic violence he did against his mother and his stepfather. All those bomb-making materials, all that craziness, no charges filed. He has a complete and clear record as it stands today. And guess what? Mr. Morley today drives for the elderly after beating up his mother and sketching whiskers on her face. So he's believed to still live on the North Shore. I know the town. If you read the book, you'll know it too. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it up right now, but he works for a business called The Ride. It's a subsidiary of the MBTA, the Transit Authority, and he drives elderly people to and from their errands. How about that? All right, guys, I'm going to leave you here. I'm sorry. This case pissed me off. It still pisses me off. This guy belongs under the prison. He needs to be in a prison right next to Zokar Zanayev. Go out and buy Michelle McPhee's book. It is an excellent read. There's actually more to it than I've alluded to here. The book is Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanayev Brothers, the U.S. Government, 
in the Boston Marathon bombings. Believe me, you'll come away with more questions than answers. It's a great book. I'm going to leave you there. The next podcast is up in the air. I'm trying to get a couple guests for a couple great cases. I just don't know which one will play out first, but I want you to have a great weekend. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Feel free to email me anytime, barry at bostonconfidential.net. All right, guys, we'll see you. Thanks for listening.